You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023 which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Angie Mims. We start with the weather forecast through Sunday from the WHAS 11 First Alert Storm Team. Today, high 57, mild and dry. Tonight, low 47. Clouds and rain increase. Wednesday, high 72, low 59. Windy with rain at times. Thursday, high 75, low 31. Windy, sunny, and warm. Friday, high 48, low 38. Bright and cooler. Saturday, high 54, low 45, rain likely, and Sunday, high 59, low 41, mild and dry. The local forecast from staff meteorologist Sam Gabrielli. Today will likely feature a little more sun than what yesterday brought for our area. Temperatures will hover in the middle to upper 50s for most spots. Clouds will increase tonight with light rain. A significant low pressure will organize in the middle portion of the country over the next few days, and that will be the focus for light rain for our area throughout midweek. The Almanac for Louisville through 4 p.m. Monday. Temperature, high 63, low 52. Normal high, 50. Normal low, 32. Record high, 82 in 2018. Record low. Six below zero in 2015. Precipitation for 24 hours through 4 p.m. Monday. Trace. Month to date, 2.12 inches. Normal month to date, 2.31 inches. Year to date, 7.48 inches. Normal year to date, 5.7 inches. Snowfall for 24 hours through 4 p.m. Monday, zero. Month to date, trace. Normal month to date, 3.1 inches. Season to date, 5.9 inches. Normal season to date, 10.2 inches. Air quality, yesterday, good. Today, good. Sun and moon, Tuesday. Sunrise, 7.26 a.m. Sunset, 6.27 p.m. Moonrise, 8.32 a.m. Moonset, 8.21 p.m. Wednesday, sunrise, 7.25 a.m. Sunset, 
6.29 p.m. Moonrise, 9 a.m. Moonset, 9.33 p.m. Moon Phases First quarter, February 27th. Full moon, March 7th. Last quarter, March 14th. New moon, March 21st. Weather History A series of powerful twisters on February 21st 1971 killed 121 people in Louisiana and Mississippi. The worst tornado traveled 200 miles from southwestern Mississippi to southern Tennessee. Now for Tuesday's headlines. Delta 8 in Kentucky. Lawmaker targeting sales of weed light. Bill would ban products with intoxicating hemp products. By Morgan Watkins. A lawmaker has filed legislation that would prohibit the sale of products that contain Delta-8, THC, and other intoxicating substances that can be derived from hemp in Kentucky. Sometimes described as weed light, Delta-8 is a chemical almost identical to the Delta-9 THC in marijuana that drives the mental high people get from that drug. Delta-8 causes similar effects, and can be indirectly synthesized from hemp, a legal cannabis plant with very little Delta-9 THC. It's sold in things like vape cartridges and edibles. The Delta-8 market lacks federal oversight, and various aspects of it aren't regulated in Kentucky. Products don't have to be tested for heavy metals, for example, and people don't have to be 21 years old to buy them like they do to buy bourbon or cigarettes. Minimal regulation contributed to safety and other concerns about Delta-8, and various people involved in Kentucky's hemp industry recently told the Courier-Journal they support more regulation. But Representative Rebecca Raymer, Republican Morgantown, suggests the state ban those products instead in House Bill 348. As a health care provider and a mother, I'm hopeful this bill will lead to meaningful conversations about these substances and their impact on minors and public health. Raymer, who's a registered nurse, told the Courier-Journal in a statement. She also said, We are still learning about the long-term side effects of Delta-8 and similar chemicals, even though they're easily accessible and minimally regulated. The Delta-8 business bloomed from a foreseen loophole in a 2018 law that federally legalized hemp, which Senator Mitch McConnell helped pass. He went to bat for hemp in hopes that it would be a cash crop for Kentucky farmers. However, Kentucky's burgeoning hemp industry has had its struggles. Industry experts cite various reasons, including a lack of guidance from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Kentucky Hemp Association President Katie Moyer said the legislation, if passed, would probably end Kentucky's hemp industry as we know it. We are at the point where Kentucky hemp farmers, processors, and retailers are grasping at straws, trying to sell anything we possibly are allowed to sell, Moyer told the Courier-Journal on Friday. Raymer's bill essentially resurrects legislation that former Republican State Senator Paul Hornback proposed last year. Hornback's bill passed the Senate and died in the House. 
Moyer said Raymer's bill also could ban other full-spectrum hemp products, including non-intoxicating ones. Anecdotal data indicate Delta-8 causes a less intense high than marijuana and shows some people use it as they would medical marijuana to assuage issues like pain and anxiety. Others use it for fun. Professor Kent Vrana, Penn State College of Medicine's Chair of Pharmacology, said testing shows Delta-8 products may contain heavy metals, chemical solvents, and pesticides. Governor Andy Bashir recently said he'd oppose banning Delta-8. He issued executive orders last fall that partially legalized medical marijuana and specified Delta-8 products must meet certain rules, including packaging and labeling requirements. Next, chemicals from train past city in river. Intakes for drinking water remain open. By Connor Griffin. The Louisville Water Company estimated the river water that would have been carrying trace amounts of chemicals from the East Palestine train derailment would flow past Louisville sometime Monday and was not planning to close drinking water intakes. Greater Cincinnati Waterworks said it temporarily closed its intakes out of an abundance of caution early Sunday, along with the Northern Kentucky Water District, before traces of the spilled chemicals arrived. But closing Louisville's intakes isn't necessary, said Kathleen Spiker, spokesperson for Louisville Water Company. To supplement sampling by the Ohio River Valley Water Sanitation Commission, the utility said it did its own upstream sampling over the weekend and did not detect chemicals. Based on our calculations, the Ohio River water that would have contained remnants of the train derailment spill will flow by Louisville today, the utility said in a statement Monday. Because we have no detections in our sampling, this means there are no quantifiable levels in the river water. Research has shown conventional treatment methods are effective against butyl acrylate, the primary water contaminant of concern. Even if chemicals were in higher concentrations, the water company signaled last week that simply treating the chemicals was the preferred approach to closing intakes. We can shut the intake down, but not for very long, Chris Bobe, water quality manager for the Louisville Utility, said at a news conference last week. When you shut pumps down, you don't want to take the chance that they won't start back up, right? So we have to be resilient enough to be able to treat what's in the river at all times. Is Louisville water safe to drink? Officials, including Mayor Craig Greenberg, have consistently assured Louisville residents that the tap water is safe to drink, drawing on a wealth of sampling data up and down the river. In recent days, chemicals upstream were in such small quantities that officials were struggling to even detect them. After heavy dilution in the river, helped by last week's rainfall and the sheer size of the Ohio itself, levels were less than one part per billion, hundreds of times below federal health standards. Now, the water company says there are no quantifiable levels in Louisville's source water at all. Louisville's data matches what other scientists see, the utility said in a statement Sunday. Bottom line, your drinking water is safe to drink. Next, Asbury University ending its two weeks of nonstop worship. 
by Anna Rocio Alvarez Brinas. Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, will end its two weeks of nonstop worship Monday and offer nighttime services only to college and high school students until Thursday. The university has hosted a revival service at its campus since February 8th but campus president Kevin Brown sent new guidelines on its social media, saying the service for the general public will end Monday at 2 p.m. He said public worship will be held in other churches in central Kentucky. The campus will host evening services for college and high school students until Thursday, which is the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. Our town's institutions here and our town's infrastructure, I just want to be clear, is just not in a place to absorb at this moment the influx of the blessed guests that we have come had come to Wilmore, Brown said. We just do not have the infrastructure to support the guests that were having come to Wilmore. The service, which brought people from different states after it became viral on TikTok, started during a regularly scheduled worship when students stayed after the service to pray, and now Hughes Auditorium has hosted services for almost two weeks. NBC reported that on February 14th, the worship had 3,000 attendees spread through Hughes Auditorium and four other facilities. The article said people have traveled from states including Hawaii, Massachusetts, Illinois, Minnesota, Tennessee, and Indiana. Brown said lines to enter the service have been long, and town police had to divert traffic but he also expressed gratitude for the university's community in ensuring everybody could be a part of the revival. He said some portions of the service will be live-streamed until Thursday, but live-stream with cell phones is still prohibited at the auditorium. Where is the Asbury Revival? The service is held in Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Here is the new schedule for the revival service. Tuesday, 7.30 to 10 p.m., high school through college age only. Wednesday, 7.30 through 10 p.m., high school through college age only. Thursday, National Collegiate Day of Prayer, 8 to 10 p.m., high school through college age only. New Guidelines for Asbury Revival Seating is limited in Hughes Stadium, and there is a wait time to be seated. Be prepared to stand outside, potentially for a significant amount of time. Live stream or broadcast is not permitted inside the auditorium. The only guest bags allowed in Hughes Auditorium will be diaper bags, medical bags, or clutch wallet. All bags will be searched. No flash photography is allowed inside Hughes Auditorium. Next, record 6,542 guns are intercepted at airports. Concern grows at a time when more are armed. By Rebecca Santana, Associated Press. Dateline, Atlanta. The woman flying out of Philadelphia's airport last year remembered to pack snacks, prescription medicine, and a cell phone in her handbag. But what was more important was what she forgot to unpack a loaded 380 caliber handgun and a black holster. 
The weapon was one of the 6,542 guns the Transportation Security Administration intercepted last year at airport checkpoints across the country. The number, roughly 18 per day, was an all-time high for guns intercepted at U.S. airports and is sparking concern at a time when more Americans are armed. What we see in our checkpoints really reflects what we're seeing in society, and in society, there are more people carrying firearms nowadays, TSA Administrator David Pekoski said. With the exception of pandemic-disrupted 2020, the number of weapons intercepted at airport check airport checkpoints has climbed every year since 2010. Experts don't think this is an epidemic of would-be hijackers. Nearly all the people caught claim to have forgotten they had a gun with them. But they emphasize the danger even one gun can pose in the wrong hands on a plane or at a checkpoint. Guns have been intercepted literally from Burbank, California to Bangor, Maine but it tends to happen more at bigger airports in areas with laws more friendly to carrying a gun, Pekoski said. The top 10 list for gun interceptions in 2022 includes Dallas, Austin, and Houston in Texas, three airports in Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Denver. When TSA staffers see what they believe to be a weapon on the x-ray machine, they usually stop the belt so the bag stays inside the machine and the passenger can't get to it. Then they call in local police. Repercussions vary depending on local and state laws. The person may be arrested and have the gun confiscated, but sometimes people have been allowed to give the gun to a companion not flying with them and continue on their way. Unloaded guns can also be placed in checked bags, assuming owners follow proper procedures. The woman in Philadelphia saw her gun confiscated and faced a fine. Those federal fines are the TSA's tool to punish those who bring a gun to a checkpoint. Last year, TSA raised the maximum fine to $14,950 as a deterrent. Passengers also lose their pre-check status. It allows them to bypass some types of screening for five years. Atlanta's airport, one of the world's busiest with 85,000 people going through checkpoints on a busy day, had the most guns intercepted in 2022, 448. But that number was actually lower than the year before. Robert Spinden, the TSA's top official in Atlanta, says the agency and the airport made a big effort in 2021 to address the number of guns being intercepted. Officials put in new signage to catch the attention of gun owners. Numerous 70-inch television screens flash rotating messages that guns are not allowed. There's signage all over the airport. There's quite a bit of information that is sort of flashing before your eyes to just try to remind you as a last-ditch effort that if you do own a firearm, do you know where it's at, Spindon said. Next, North Korea test launches two missiles. Japan seeks emergency security council meeting by Hyung Jin Kim and Kim Tong Young, Associated Press. Dateline, Seoul, South Korea. North Korea, 
fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea east of the country Monday in its second test launch in three days, prompting Japan to request an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council. The launches continue a tit-for-tat exchange that began Saturday and follow a year in which North Korea launched more than 70 missiles, the most ever. Pyongyang has recently escalated nuclear threats and threatened an unprecedentedly strong response to annual U.S.-South Korea military drills, which it views as preparation for an invasion. South Korea's military said it detected two missile launches Monday morning from a town on North Korea's west coast, which were later confirmed by North Korean official media. Japan said both missiles landed in waters outside Japan's exclusive economic zone and that no damage to aircraft or vessels in the area was reported, but they flew distances that suggest most of South Korea is in range. The tests follow an intercontinental ballistic missile launch Saturday, the country's first since January 1 and a U.S. bomber flight over the Korean Peninsula conducted in response Sunday. Both South Korea and Japan condemned recent North Korean launches as threats to international peace and violations of U.N. Secretary Council resolutions that ban any ballistic activities by North Korea. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told reporters that Tokyo was requesting an emergency security council meeting to respond to recent North Korean launches. An initial Security Council briefing, led by Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs Khaled Kiari, was set for later Monday. Further council action against North Korea is unlikely. China and Russia, both veto-wielding powers embroiled in confrontations with Washington, opposed U.S.-led attempts to add fresh sanctions last year. The frequency of using the Pacific as our firing range depends upon the U.S. forces' action character. Kim Yo-jong, the powerful sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, said in the official translation of a statement carried by state media. We are well aware of the movement of U.S. forces' strategic strike means, which are recently getting brisk around the Korean Peninsula. She likely referred to Sunday's U.S. flight of B-1B long-range supersonic bombers for separate training with South Korea and Japan, conducted in response to North Korea's Saturday ICBM test. North Korea typically responds to U.S. B-1B flights, which can carry a huge payload of conventional weapons with aggressive statements or military demonstrations of its own. Japan's chief cabinet secretary, Hirokazu Matsuno, said that North Korea may make further provocations, such as more missile launches and nuclear tests. In her statement earlier Sunday, Kim Yo-jong threatened to take additional powerful steps over upcoming military drills between the United States and South Korea. North Korea has said many of its previous weapons tests were warnings over U.S.-South Korean military drills. The South Korean and U.S. militaries have conducted larger and more frequent drills this year in response to escalating missile tests and because concerns about COVID-19 are receding.
The two militaries plan to hold a tabletop exercise this week to hone a joint response to use of nuclear weapons by North Korea. The Allies also plan to conduct a joint computer-simulated exercise and field training in March. North Korea has repeatedly condemned regular South Korea-U.S. military drills as practice for an invasion, though the Allies say their exercises are defensive in nature. Some observers say North Korea often uses its rivals' drills as a pretext to test and improve its weapons systems. Many experts believe that North Korea ultimately plans to win international recognition as a legitimate nuclear state to get international sanctions lifted and receive other outside concessions. Hours after Monday's launches, South Korea's foreign ministry said Seoul placed unilateral sanctions on four individuals and five institutions it said were involved in illicit activities supporting the North's nuclear arms development and evasion of sanctions. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul's government has placed sanctions on 31 individuals and 35 organizations, mostly from North Korea, for supporting the North's nuclear ambitions. But these steps are mostly symbolic, since the two countries do not have business ties. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Command said the new launches highlight the destabilizing impact of North Korea's unlawful weapons programs. It said the U.S. commitments to the defense of South Korea and Japan remain ironclad. The North said the tests involved the new 600mm multiple rocket launcher system, which could be armed with tactical nuclear weapons for battlefield use. South Korean defense officials described the weapon system as a short-range ballistic missile. The official Korean Central News Agency said the tests simulated strikes on targets up to 245 miles away. According to Japanese and South Korean assessments, the North Korean missiles flew at a maximum altitude of 30 to 60 miles in a distance of 210 to 250 miles. North Korea has claimed to have missiles capable of striking both the U.S. mainland and South Korea with nuclear weapons, but many foreign experts have said North Korea still has not mastered some key technologies, such as building warheads small enough to be mounted on missiles in ensuring those warheads survive atmospheric reentry. In her statement Monday, Kim Yo-jong reiterated that North Korea has re-entry vehicle technology. She also hit back at South Korean experts who questioned whether North Korea's ICBMs would be functional in real-war situations. Next, one dead, four wounded after Mardi Gras shooting in New Orleans. A shooting during a Mardi Gras parade in New Orleans killed one person, wounded four, and sent panicked families running for cover, police said Monday. One suspect was taken into custody shortly after the shooting Sunday night, the New Orleans Police Department said. Police said all five victims were taken to the hospital, where one of the male victims was pronounced dead. The shooting happened during the Crew of Bacchus parade. WWL-TV reported in a neighborhood outside the French Quarter. Next, Putin may meet top Chinese party official on Moscow trip.
Russian President Vladimir Putin could meet with the Chinese Communist Party's foreign policy chief in Moscow, the Kremlin said Monday. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, "We don't rule out Putin's meeting with Wang Yi, the Chinese Communist Party's most senior foreign policy official, who's visiting the Russian capital." Peskov hailed Russia-China ties as allied in nature. China, which has declared a no-limits friendship with Russia, has pointedly refused to criticize Moscow's action in Ukraine. Next, search for plane begins near volcano. Dateline: Manila, Philippines. Philippine authorities on Monday prepared to send a search mission near the crater of a restive volcano after they spotted the suspected wreckage of a small plane that went missing with four people on board over the weekend. Two Filipino pilots and two Australians were aboard the Cessna 340, which lost contact after takeoff from Albay Province, southeast of the capital, Saturday morning, on its way to Manila. The Civil Aviation Authority of the Philippines said the Australians were working as consultants for Energy Development Corp, a large geothermal power company. Officials told reporters Sunday that an aerial search spotted the suspected wreckage, including the tail, scattered about 1,150 feet from the crater on the steep southwestern slope of Mayon Volcano. There was no sign of people. This concludes readings for the first sections of the Courier Journal for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Angie Mims. This is Tom Lewis, the new executive director at Radio I. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio I team, and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio I team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas, please feel free to email me at tom.lewis@radioi.org or call 859-422-6390. Thanks. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Daryl Heckman. We start with the obituaries. We read only the name, date of death, and age. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during weekdays at eight five nine four two two. Six three nine zero, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Janice Marks Balen, ninety-one, Louisville. Richard Bauer Jr., sixty-one, Jeffersonville. William Braswell, seventy, Hazard. Wanda Campbell, sixty-five. Shelbyville. Mary Elizabeth Quinn Carroll, ninety-five, deputy. Dual Cherry, seventy-six, Fountain Run. 
Michael Lewis Constantine, 83, Floyd's Knob. Jamie Luann Davenport, 32, Russellville. Edgar Eddie Dawson, 86, Shepherdsville. Edwin Elliott, 79, Eastview. Susie Ethington, 90, Frankfurt. Laura Lynn Farmer, 82, Louisville. Gregory Gore, 54, Louisville. Charles Douglas Doug Guilford, 53, Louisville. Daniel Lee Hill, 60, Louisville. Betty Ann Baker Jackson, 92, Beaverdam. Beatrice Lane, 96, Tompkinsville. Viva Joe Lloyd, 80, Louisville. Lodell Maddox, 95, Central City. Franklin Oswald Ozzie Maglinger, 88, Owensboro. Eric Lee Matherly, 39, Springfield. Eric Conrad Mayers, 50, Louisville. James Blake McCallion, 68, Georgetown. Bessie McDaniel, 92, Elizabethtown. Leonora McQueen, 58, Louisville. Joseph Lee Joe Norman, 83, New Haven. Arthur Russell Norris, 87, Springfield. Michael Sarvella, 26, Louisville. Emmett A. Snook, 81, Madison. Damon Milford Sergener Jr., 92. Edward Dwayne Thompson, 80, Louisville. Vanessa Lee Vale, 24, Gamblesville. Donald Noble Walters, 87, Louisville. Donna L. Wilkinson, 49, Corydon. Barney E. Williamson, Jr., 78, Owensboro. James William Wilson III, 84, Georgetown. And Diana L. Wright, 76, DePauw. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. Woman injured in police shooting, LMPD. She refused to stop waving gun. Kentucky State Police are investigating a police shooting Sunday evening that left a woman in the hospital, according to a statement from the Louisville Metro Police Department. Police Chief Jacqueline Gwynne Villaroyal said in a statement that 3rd Division officers responded to the 9100 block of Chenault Road after 5.30 p.m. after reports of a woman waving a gun. Responding officers gave multiple verbal commands for the woman to drop the weapon. The suspect refused to comply and was struck by police gunfire, Gwynne Villaroyal said. The chief said medical aid was given to the woman immediately after the shooting and was reported to be conscious and alert while taken to the hospital. I have spoken to LMPD Chief Gwynne Villaroyal, Regarding an officer-involved shooting this evening, the chief informed me the incident involved a woman brandishing a firearm on a residential street who advanced on LMPD officers. After several verbal commands, the officers responded, and the suspect was struck by gunfire. LMPD rendered immediate aid, and her condition is unknown, Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg said in a statement. I'm grateful no LMPD officers were harmed in this encounter and thankful no members of the public were injured during this incident. I'm also thankful footage of this incident was captured on a body-worn camera. We will update the public on this incident as information becomes available. Council member accused of violations. Complaint said Purvis didn't report donations. 
Louisville Metro Councilwoman Donna Purvis is accused of violating campaign finance laws and failing to report hundreds of dollars in donations, according to the Kentucky Registry of Election Finance, and a complaint filed with the agency. Purvis, a Democrat who represents District 5 in the West End, was elected in 2018. Documents obtained from the KREF show the election finance agency began to send messages to her after she took office, but failed to file a 60-day post-general election finance statement due January 11, 2019. Similar messages from Kraft to Purvis regarding later missing campaign finance reports followed over the next few years, with the latest relating to missing 2022 reports. The maximum penalty for each violation is $5,000. Meanwhile, a complaint was filed in December by Denise Bentley, Purvis's former legislative aide, alleging Purvis committed 14 violations of the state's campaign finance law, including missing filing deadlines, not reporting checks, and only reporting partial payments. Bentley was fired by Purvis in January 2020 after a falling out, related in part to how Purvis hadn't paid property taxes on her late mother's home. Purvis called that incident an honest mistake that she corrected immediately once she became aware of the debt. Bentley is also suing Purvis over alleged defamation and retaliation in connection to her firing. Purvis declined to comment for this story. In a complaint to the Kreff complaint, in response to the Kreff complaint, she and her attorney, Anna Stewart Weitz, acknowledged she did not timely file campaign reports in 2022 and that Purvis was working with her counsel and a financial reporting expert to repair and file those reports on or before January 20th. The response from Weitz otherwise largely denies Bentley's other allegations, notes the civil suit Bentley filed against Purvis, and describes Purvis as a careful steward of campaign contributions. Weitz also asked the registry to find Purvis's late filings were good-faith mistakes made due to the difficulties of using the CREF electronic reporting format during its first full year in use and the challenges she had in learning the system. Purvis and her attorney also asked for CREF to enter into a conciliation agreement and issue only a minimal fine once her late forms are filed. There have been bipartisan complaints over the reporting website, and the state senator filed a bill in January to essentially scrap CREF's online reporting systems and return to paper filings. Purvis has still not yet completed her 2022 reports per the registry. What did Kreft documents show about Purvis's filings? Katie Flora, who coordinates the handling of late campaign finance reports for the registry, wrote to Purvis in a letter dated May 7, 2019, urging her to file her election finance statements. Flora then informed Purvis that she can obtain a copy of the election finance statement form online and warned her that she could face a $100 a day penalty for every day it was laid up to a maximum of $5,000. More similarly worded letters from Florida Purvis followed over time. A January 8, 2020 letter informed Purvis that she had missed the, the prior month's deadline to file a 2019 annual finance statement. When running for re-election in 2022, Purvis did not file pre- and post-primary statements for 30 and 15 days before the May primary and then 30 days after the primary, according to the letters to her from Flora. Similar reporting issues occurred around the general election in the fall. The Kreft website shows Purvis said she spent uh, and received $14,550 for the 2018 primary and nearly $8,990 for that year's general election. Purvis has not yet completed her 2022 reports per Kreft. Flora noted in October that Purvis had started but not finished the 30-day pre-primary report that was due April 19th last year. Kreft Executive Director John Steffen told the Courier-Journal that Purvis had not yet been fined and the registry's seven-member board may not take up the matter until September due to a number of cases ahead of hers. What's in the Kreft complaint about Purvis? Apart from the later missing report issues brought up by Kreft, Bentley's complaint alleges Purvis received a $1,000 check 
from the Charter Spectrum employee pack in 2021 and told Bentley to acknowledge the check. Purvis then deposited the check but never disclosed or reported it to CREF as required by law, according to Bentley's complaint. Bentley, among other claims, said Purvis also accepted $400 in cash from a donor and deposited the funds in a bank account but only reported receiving $100 from the donor. During a September 30, 2022 deposition taken as part of Bentley's lawsuit, Purvis said, I don't know much about CREF at all. According to a transcript, she owns a flood damage mitigation company. Footnote to the complaint said Bentley has personal knowledge of Purvis being advised in 2018 and 2021 to complete CREF training on compliance with reporting laws, but Purvis declined both times to do so. Bentley, in a response to CREF, wrote Purvis should face the penalties in a full audit of campaign banking records. What matters is whether a person who takes personal advantage of Kentucky's access to public office fulfills the very minimal reporting requirements to ensure transparency, integrity, and basic compliance, Bentley wrote. Donna Purvis has failed to do so. Have other Metro Council members faced campaign violations? A recent case came in 2019 when Metro Councilman Scott Reed, Republican 16th, paid a $2,000 fine after the Kreft board found probable cause his campaign violation, his campaign violated several laws in his 2016 race against Democrat Gil Holland. The Kentucky Democratic Party filed the initial complaint against Reed, and the Kreft board found his campaign produced and distributed campaign mailers without properly identifying their sponsor, erroneously reported its finances throughout the general election campaign cycle, and filed its final pre-election report 29 days late. Metro Police, firefighters dish out meals on wheels. Firefighters and officers from the Louisville Fire Department and Louisville Metro Police Department walked away from their usual duties last week to hit the streets delivering packages uh, meals on Wheels to residents in several city neighborhoods. Buttigieg's warns railroads support Ohio community. Associated Press. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg sent a letter to Sunday to the CEO of Norfolk Southern warning that the freight rail company must demonstrate unequivocal support for the people of East Palestine, Ohio and surrounding areas after a fiery train derailment led to the release of chemicals and residents expressing concerns about their health. Norfolk Southern must live up to its commitment to make residents whole. It must also live up to its obligation to do whatever it takes to stop putting communities such as East Palestine at risk, but it just wrote. This is the right time for Norfolk Southern to take a leadership position within the rail industry, shifting to a posture that focuses on supporting, not thwarting, efforts to raise the standard of U.S. rail safety. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said Friday that the chemicals that spilled into the Ohio River are no longer a risk, even as people in the community say they have constant headaches and irritated eyes. The state plans to open a medical clinic in the village of 4700, to analyze their symptoms despite repeated statements that air and water testing has shown no signs of contaminants. Still, uncertainty persists about the consequences of a derailment that occurred roughly two weeks ago. Peter DiCarlo, a professor of environmental health and engineering at Johns Hopkins University, told ABC News on Sunday that more testing is needed to determine which chemicals are present. We just don't have the information we need to understand what chemicals may be present, DiCarlo said. We know it started as vinyl chloride, but as soon as you burn that, all bets are off. You have a lot of chemical byproducts that can happen from a combustion process like that. Ask if he would move back to East Palestine if he were already living there. DiCarlo said, I have two little boys. I would not. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw issued a statement on Saturday that he returned to East Palestine today to meet with local leaders, first responders, and a group of Norfolk Southern employees who live in the area. In every conversation today, I shared how deeply sorry I am this happened to their home, Shaw said. The Atlanta-based company has a website with updates, nsmakingitright.com. Buttigieg said the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating the cause of the derailment 
and that the Federal Railroad Administration is also analyzing whether safety violations occurred and will hold Norfolk Southern accountable if violations did occur. The Environmental Protection Agency has said the company must document the release of hazardous contaminants and outline cleanup actions. But, but it is also said that Norfolk Southern and other rail companies spent millions of dollars in the courts and lobbying members of Congress to impose common-sense safety regulations, stopping some entirely and reducing the scope of others. He said the effort undermined rules on brake requirements and delayed the phase-in for more durable rail cars to transport hazardous materials to 2029. Trump absent as Iowa caucus train starts. Former president faces enormous expectations. Cedar Rapids. Nikki Haley is swinging through Iowa this week, fresh off announcing her presidential campaign. Her fellow South Carolinian, Republican Senator Tim Scott, will also be here as he decides his political future. And former Vice President Mike Pence was just in the state courting influential evangelical Christian activists. After a slow start, Republican presidential prospects are streaming into the leadoff presidential caucus state. Notably absent from the lineup, at least for now, is former President Donald Trump. Few of the White House hopefuls face the lofty expectations in Iowa that Trump does. He finished a competitive second to devout social conservative Ted Cruz in 2016 and went on to carry the state twice by healthy margins as the Republican presidential nominee in 2016 and 2020 elections. It's generally impossible for this guy to manage these expectations. They're enormous. They're self-made, said Luke Martz, a veteran Iowa Republican strategist who helped lead Mitt Romney's 2012 Iowa campaign. I don't see how anyone who's saying, I'm the guy, can come in and even get a second-place finish. Yet, in the three months since he announced his bid for a comeback, Trump has not set foot in Iowa. The first place his claim of party dominance will be tested early next year. To be sure, Trump has a campaign presence in Iowa. Alex Latcham, who is part of Trump's national team, but is based in this state, has been working on leading a caucus campaign director. But Trump held a kickoff rally on January 28th in South Carolina, where his 2016 primary victory sealed his status as the GOP frontrunner. And he squeezed in a speaking spot earlier that day at an annual GOP meeting in New Hampshire, where he also won the first in the nation primary seven years ago. Though the caucuses remain nearly a year off, they remain the first event on the calendar, and some Iowa GOP activists have taken notice of Trump's absence. I find that quite interesting, Gloria Matza, chairwoman of the Polk County GOP, said of Trump's New Hampshire and South Carolina stops, because Iowa's first in the nation. Doesn't everybody come here first? Meanwhile, others are making inroads. Though Pence is not yet a candidate, his advocacy group Advancing American Values last week launched a campaign to organize opposition to school policies like one in an eastern Iowa district that has become a flashpoint among conservatives. Pence was in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday rallying opponents of a policy uh, by the nearby Linmar Community School District that's at issue in a federal lawsuit. The school board last year enacted a measure allowing transgender students to request a gender support plan to begin socially transitioning at school without permission of their parents. The issue and early focus of the 2024 Republican presidential prospects is particularly contentious among Christian conservatives with whom Pence routinely says he identifies. And at Wednesday's event at a pizza restaurant, it had the feel of an early caucus campaign stop, Pence illustrated his traction. We don't co-parent with government, Pence told a cheering audience of more than 100. We trust parents to protect their children, and no one will ever protect America's children better than their moms and dads. Haley has rallies planned in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids areas on Monday and Tuesday. Meanwhile, Scott is speaking at an event at Drake University on Wednesday, part of what aides call a national listening tour aimed at informing his plans before addressing the annual Polk County Republican fundraiser in suburban Des Moines that evening. Quietly making inroads is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, 
who visited Iowa in January and met last week with legislative Republicans in the Capitol in Des Moines and Republican activists in western Iowa. Though several would-be candidates, including Trump, were in Iowa last year campaigning for midterm candidates, these first impressions at the outset of the GOP presidential primary are important. That's especially true as many in the GOP wait to see whether Governor Ron DeSantis proceeds with a White House bid. But as the field of candidates grows in the coming months, Trump still retains a core Republican support that could be hard to overcome. In October, 57% of Iowa Republicans said they hoped Trump decided to run in 2024, according to a Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll, while 33% said they hoped he would not, and 10% said they were not sure. Of course, there's a contingent that will support him regardless, Iowa Republican National Committeeman Steve Scheffler said. But there's an increasing number of people who want to kick the tires before making a decision. That's what gives others an open door. New earthquake hits Turkey and Syria. Devastation continues as three dead, over 200 hurt. Ankara. A new 6.4 magnitude earthquake on Monday killed three people and injured more than 200 in parts of Turkey that were laid waste two weeks ago by a massive quake that killed tens of thousands. Officials said more buildings collapsed, trafficking occupants, and several people were injured in both Turkey and Syria. Monday's earthquake was centered in the town of Dafin in Turkey's Hatay province, one of the worst hit regions in the magnitude 7.8 earthquake that hit on February 6th. It was felt in Syria, Jordan, Cyprus, Israel, and as far away as Egypt, and was followed by a second magnitude 5.8 tumbler. Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu said three people were killed and 213 injured. Search and rescue efforts were underway in three collapsed buildings where a total of five people were believed trapped. A number of buildings collapsed in the new quake, trapping people inside, Hatay Mayor Luftu Savas said. He told NTV television that these may be people who had returned to homes or were trying to move their furniture out of damaged buildings. Turkish Vice President Fuat Akte said at least eight people were hospitalized in Turkey. Syria's state news agency, Sana, reported that six people were injured in Aleppo from falling debris. In Hatay, the police search teams rescued one person who was trapped inside a three-story building and were trying to reach three other people inside, Haberturk Television reported. The February 6th quake killed nearly 45,000 people in both countries, the vast majority of them in Turkey, where more than a million and a half people are in temporary shelters. Turkish authorities have recorded more than 6,000 aftershocks since. Haberturk journalists reporting from Hatay said they were jolted violently by Monday's quake and held on to each other to avoid falling. In the Turkish city of Adana, eyewitness Alejandro Malaver said people left homes for the streets carrying blankets into their cars. Malaver said everyone is very scared and that no one wants to get back into their houses. The Syrian opposition's Syrian civil defense, also known as White Helmets, reported that several people were injured in Syria's rebel-held northwest after they jumped from buildings or when they were struck by falling debris in the town of Jindaris, one of the towns worst affected by the February 6th earthquake. The White Helmets said several damaged and abandoned buildings collapsed in Syria's northwest without injuring anyone. In the Syrian city of Idlib, Frightened residents were preparing to sleep in parks and other public spaces, while fuel lines formed at gas stations as people attempted to get as far as possible from the, any buildings that might collapse. The Syrian American Medical Society, which runs hospitals in northern Syria, said it had treated a number of patients, including a seven-year-old boy who suffered heart attacks brought on by fear following the quake. Akte said inspections for damage were underway in Hatay and urged citizens to stay away from damaged buildings and to carefully follow rescue teams' operations. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan visited Hatay earlier on Monday and said his government would begin constructing close to 
200,000 new homes in the quake-devastated region as early as next month. Erdogan said the new buildings will be no taller than three or four stories, built on firmer ground and to higher standards and in consultation with geophysics, geotechnical, geology, and seismology professors and other experts. The Turkish leader said destroyed cultural monuments would be rebuilt in accordance with their historic and cultural text era. Erdogan said around 1.6 million people are currently being housed in temporary shelters. The Turkish Disaster Management Agency, AFAD, on Monday raised the number of confirmed fatalities from the February 6th earthquake in Turkey to 41,156. That increases the overall death toll in both Turkey and Syria to 44,844. Search and rescue operations for survivors of the original quake had been called off in most of the quake zone, but AFAD chief Yunus Cesar said search teams were continuing their efforts in more than a dozen collapsed buildings, mostly in Hatay province. There were no signs of anyone being alive under the rubble since three members of one family, a mother, a father, and a 12-year-old boy, were extracted from a collapsed building in Hatay on Saturday. The boy later died. Authorities said more than 110,000 buildings across 11 quake-hit Turkish provinces were either destroyed or so severely damaged by the February 6th quake that they needed to be torn down. The European Union's health agency warned Monday of the risk of disease outbreaks in the coming weeks. The Center for Disease Prevention and Control said the food and waterborne diseases, respiratory infections, and vaccine-preventable infections are a risk in the upcoming period, with the potential to cause outbreaks, particularly as survivors are moving to temporary shelters. A surge of cholera cases in the affected areas is a significant possibility in the coming weeks, it said, noting that authorities in northwestern Syria have reported thousands of cases of the disease since last September, and a planned vaccination campaign was delayed due to the quake. Senator Quiet as court ruling imperils women. Justices rule more guns for bad guys and McConnell hides. It's about time the great and powerful Oz steps from behind the curtain and tells us what he thinks and how he's going to fix it. A couple weeks ago, U.S. District Judge Danny Reeves of Kentucky struck down the federal law that prohibits those under domestic violence protection orders from possessing guns. It's not hyperbole to suggest that women will die because of this. According to the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, an abused woman is five times more likely to be murdered if her abuser has access to a gun. According to Federal Department of Justice, Three women and one man are murdered every day by their partners. In 70 to 80% of domestic partner murders, the man had previously abused the woman. Reeves may not have had much of an option. The case involves Sherman Combs of Cynthiana, Kentucky, who had a domestic violence order placed against him last June and was ordered not to stalk, harass, or threaten an intimate partner. According to Reeves' ruling, Combs went out a few days later and purchased a 357 Magnum handgun. Reeves allowed to stand a charge that Combs lied to the firearms dealer when he claimed he wasn't prohibited from owning a gun. But the key charge, being a prohibited person in possession of firearm, was dismissed. The ruling followed a Supreme Court ruling last June that radically changed the way federal courts are instructed to consider whether gun laws are constitutional. No longer can they consider if those laws are justifiable or serve a public purpose, like protecting lives. Under the Gruen decision, judges can only consider whether there is a historical tradition that supports those laws. And so, because the first domestic violence order laws weren't passed until the 1970s, and the first laws prohibiting people who stand accused of domestic violence didn't come out until the 1990s, Reeves ruled just as the nation's Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the same day, gun laws that try to protect women who are victims of domestic violence are unconstitutional. Josh Douglas, a law professor at the University of Kentucky, said no court has ever instituted the new higher standard of finding a historical analog to justify gun laws. There's no other constitutional right that has that kind of analysis, he said. One person we haven't heard talk about this is U.S. Senate 
minority leader Mitch McConnell, who is arguably more responsible for this ridiculous Supreme Court ruling than any other human being, including the six members of the U.S. Supreme Court who put their names to this abomination. You undoubtedly remember how McConnell changed the dynamics on the court from 2016 to 2020 when he first refused to consider Barack Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland to replace the late Antonin Scalia and then raced through the confirmation of Amy Comey Barrett, Donald Trump's nominee to the court, as he raced toward electoral defeat. Last week, I asked McConnell's spokesman, Robert Stirr, what McConnell thought of Reeves' ruling, whether or not it was good groundwork for the public policy, and whether he thinks the Supreme Court should reconsider the Gruen case, which created the dangerous situation. McConnell of the Great Oz refused to emerge from behind the curtain, stirred, and respond. There's no reason to believe McConnell even cares. He was the guy who blocked the reauthorization of the Federal Violence Against Women Act and even refused to take up for his own wife when Trump made racist comments about her. Combs' lawyer, Thomas Lyons, acknowledged Reeves' ruling could increase the risk of harm for domestic violence victims, but told Courier-Journal reporter Andy Wolfson that protection of constitutional rights often has societal costs. Those societal costs fall squarely on the shoulders of McConnell, who is primarily responsible for creating a radical Supreme Court that is more interested in protecting guns than people. And yet, the great and powerful Oz continues to hide behind the curtain and say nothing. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Your reader has been Daryl Heckman. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio Eye.